Mastermind Agent is proud to present success calls. Top real estate agents from across North America reveal their success secrets, strategies, and systems in up-close and personal interviews. You can find all the calls at www.mastermindagent.com. Hi, I'm Mike Cerrone with Mastermind Agent. This month's top agent is Brad Korn with Keller Williams Eastland Partners in Independence, Missouri. Last year, he closed 101 transactions with a total sales volume of $10 million. His average sales price was 99000 of which 50% were buyers and 50% were sellers. He operates a team with four members, one buyer agent, one showing agent, one admin, and one team leader. Brad Korn is the team leader of the Korn team. He's been an agent for 22 years. Brad works the metro Kansas City market. He's sold over 2,000 homes in his career. In this call, Brad talks about his slow start in real estate. He only made $10,000 in his first three years combined. Now he's averaged 100 closings per year for the last seven years. How he copied the best ideas from top agents and implements them right away. Listing pricing strategy that sets him apart. Marketing program to sell a home faster than his competition. His appearance on HGTV's My House is Worth What? How he generates 60% of his business from repeat and referrals. Details about his database marketing plan that makes the phone ring. How he generates 30% of his business from geographic farming. Using templates to get your printing costs down. What he says on his mailing piece to get response. How he sold the same volume of homes after reducing his team from 8 to 3 members. The showing agent model of leverage. Team dynamics, compensation, profit margins, and more. First, a quick word from our sponsor, RealGTV, real estate agent lead generation television. Need more referrals? Get a free script and simple three-part plan used by a top agent to receive and close 74 referral transactions in one year. Just go to freereferralscript.com. That's freereferralscript.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome to the call, Brad. Hey, I'm glad to be here, Mike. Brad, before we start, let's do this. Let's go back for a minute and talk about what you did before you got into real estate. Before I went into real estate, I was actually in uh, retail for a long time. Of course, everybody, like many people, started in the old fast food back in junior high. I don't know how far back we want to go, but basically retail in junior high, beginning of high school, I got into a county seat and then there used to be, well, county seat used to sell Levi's and moved up to an assistant manager like within just a couple of months just because I was a hard worker and uh, kind of sucked me into the retail world for the first for my first official career, if you want to call it that. Then I got to uh, I hooked up with some friends in Kansas City that used to travel around to the World Series, Super Bowl, NBA. We'd sell championship shirts, and we'd be gone for a month, and that was really cool till I had kids. <laughs> so uh, after those two things went, I thought, what the heck? I'm going to give this real estate thing a try. I was actually in Minnesota in 1991 back before they had buyer agency and seller agency. In fact, I believe that all started in, in the Twin Cities uh, with a big lawsuit and all that fun stuff. So I was back in the you know early days. I actually 
funny. I'm kind of like a dinosaur in real estate. We used to have thermal paper is what our MLS <laughs> sheets printed out on. Might have even been before books, but the books came out right after I got in. We used to make photocopies of book pages and highlight in yellow marker which properties I wanted them to drive by. Uh, so I've been through, you know, from the very beginning. Back in 1991, Minnesota, that's where I sold, and then I moved back to Kansas City, which is where I'm from. Graduated from Kansas City and all that stuff. Got back here in 1995. First three years in real estate in Minnesota. Well, actually, I got to tell you, it was a really good start. I made $10,000 if you add up all three years, my first three years. I made ten grand. <laughs> nice. <laughs> Pretty slow start, and here I am on an interview with you. That's a little crazy. So when I moved back to Kansas City in 1995, I thought, you know, maybe I'm a little slow. So I said, maybe I'll try this one more time. <laughs> and uh, sure enough, it was the best thing I ever did and started hanging around a lot of top producers and uh, what's great about, you know, the people you interview and what you're doing is this group of agents is so sharing with everything that the reason I'm even on this call is because they shared stuff and, and more importantly, I implemented it. So uh, it has built us a very solid business over the last 21 years. We've been selling an average of 100 houses a year, whether the market was good or bad over the last seven, eight years. Sounds like you had a really slow start. Why do you think that happened? You know, um, back in 91 when I got in, um, I, I think I had the mindset that a lot of agents did. First of all, you don't learn anything you need to know when you go to get your real estate license. And I don't think I'm saying anything that anybody doesn't know, right? <laughs> real estate school, they don't even say the word marketing, you know. And so when I got out, I mean, I was the best cut, copy, and paste, photocopy you know, making brochures on how I was going to be this top agent. And I spent all day cutting and sticking and gluing all these brochures together and flyers. And, you know, I just sat, I was waiting for the phone to ring and uh, it wasn't ringing. I wasn't even from Minnesota, so I didn't even have a sphere of influence. So it was literally, what was kind of cool about that is I literally had to go out and do the open houses. I had to do, you know, the farming and I had to do all that door knocking. I mean, I door knocked daily. Um, so I did all that stuff that really a beginning agent should still be doing today to get their business ramped up because it didn't cost a lot of money. And I sure as heck didn't have any money then. But it was sitting around waiting for the phone to ring. You know, you just kind of think the phone's just going to ring or you're going to go do an open house and 10 people are going to walk through with suitcases of cash and go, where can I buy my next house? You know, didn't happen. <laughs> well, Brad, how long have you been in the business? So I got back in, I got in real estate in 1991. So I think it's been about 22 years since I actually started. Uh, 95 is really... You know, that first year of 1995 when I moved back to Kansas City, I didn't really do any volume that year either. That was building up the business and fixing the things that I figured out was not working and starting to build a business. And then, you know, 96, I did a million in sales. 97, I did two. 98, I did four. 99, I did eight. So I just started just growing this business really fast just by you know, implementing the ideas and, and things that I heard from other agents. While you were doing that, that big growth spurt, were you focusing on your sphere of influence? Um, yes. Yeah, actually, well, the last seven years, I'll say I really, really focused on my sphere or what I would call my database. Um, I've become a little bit of a master at converting business out of my database. 
the phone just rings. I mean, it's just constant and it's the drip system and the consistent, persistent, you know, follow up that we do, which I'm sure we'll talk about more in this call. When you were in those early years, how were you building your practice? Well, you know, it was, honestly, it was a lot of what you think a normal realtor does. I did a lot of open houses. I called on for sale by owners. I called expireds. I mean, I remember the days when I used to put this packet together and it's like urgent. I know why your house didn't sell. And I would go out at five o'clock in the morning and stick these on their front door, you know, and it was just, it's like, 20 ways to get one piece of business. And I did all 20 just to get that business going. And of course, you know, a lot of it was the sphere of influence starting with that list. However, you know, what I find is a lot of people create their list and their sphere and they make, they send out their announcement card. And then again, we wait for the phone to ring. And I'm sure lots of realtors on this call listening have had a friend or a neighbor list their house with somebody else. So the sphere is a tough way to start. I mean, you, you, when you're new, you're looking for that immediate business and you just, you thought you were going to make $10,000, $20,000 every time you sold a house. And uh, that doesn't exist in a Kansas City market where our average price is one fifty. dollars <laughs> uh, <laughs> Right. Yeah. The total check might be 10000 when it comes in and you get this little itty bitty bit left over at the end of the day. And it's like, what? Where did it all go? Right. Well, how many homes did you sell last year? Uh, we were right around 100 again. Uh, I think it was 101 was the final record in our office. It's just, you know, it's right around there, you know, sometimes just under 100, most of the time just over 100. I think the most we've sold in one year was 125, and that was in 05, right before our market turned. However, I will tell you that in 07, we actually sold the most houses in one month that I've ever sold, and that was 25 houses in one month. And uh, it's just, again, just never stopping, just continuing to implement new things and staying very consistent and persistent with everything that we are doing. Uh, Yeah, you seem to have ramped up and you've been very consistent for a lot of years. How many homes do you think you've sold in your career? Yeah, I think I added that up uh, the other day. It's somewhere between 1,500 to 2,000. I'm not sure if I'm quite at 2,000, but I know I'm over 1,500. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. And in fact, you built up such a successful operation that you've done some amazing things, one of which, if I understand correctly, is you've been on HGTV. Is that correct? Uh, yeah. Yeah. I I actually never turned down an opportunity for any kind of free marketing. <laughs> so I am always looking out for free marketing. And that was one of them that we nailed was an HGTV show, um, My House is Worth What? How did that come to you? Did you go to them or did they come to you? Uh, you know, it's... It's really funny how just if you're aware and paying attention to things happening around you, like just one of the things that I always remember in my head is like always look for free marketing. And I don't remember what the heck it was. If I saw some email or caught some email that said, you know, HGTV was coming to Kansas City, that's what it was. The board, our Kansas City board sent out an email that said uh, HGTV was planning on coming to town. Well, I figured, shoot, there's no way. I mean, every realtor in Kansas City probably responded to this. So I just took the, took it upon myself to find out who the producer was. I walked through my house. Well, first of all, I had to turn it on and find out what the show format was because I hadn't seen that one yet. Uh, I don't usually sit around and watch a lot of TV. 
So I turned on the show, I watched one or two episodes, and then I just kind of did a little mock one right around my own personal residence, just set the video camera up and just shot it uh, on a DVD, mailed it into them. And I mean, literally within a week of dropping that thing in the mailbox, I got a call that said uh, they had selected me. Now, I honestly believe I was probably the only one that sent in a, a, a tape. <laughs> so, <laughs> right. <laughs> That's great. That's great. So, how? Just real quickly, what what happened during the episode? Did they come out to Kansas City, and uh, how long did it take? How much was your time commitment? Yeah, um, yeah, they came to Kansas City. This was one where uh, the show is about you know how well did they do in upgrading things in their property, and they they show a blue arrow that goes up if you did the right thing that added value, and they show a red arrow that goes down if you need to do something or your house needs something done or you spent too much money. And uh, yeah, they came to Kansas City. We got a couple of areas. The Waldo Brookside area is the kind of downtown living, a lot of walking parks, you know, what you would kind of imagine like living downtown Chicago or something like that. But it's the big old two-story, three-story houses. So that was one area that they wanted to shoot in. And then the other one was in historic Parkville up on the north side of Kansas City. So really what they did was they just came to town. They got, they also had two sellers respond that they picked to shoot the, the film at their house. I hadn't met these people before. Of course, I gave them a couple names of, of sellers, but they had already gotten that through their website as well. And uh, I just met them there. It was, it was a one-day shoot at each property. So I think we did it on a Friday and a Saturday. It was about eight hours of filming each day at each property, and then they, of course they cut it up and make it look great. It was it was kind of fun too. It's like you have to do everything three times because they do like a wide angle camera shot, and you say one thing, and they're like, "Oh yeah, we like that. Okay, can you do it again?" And then they'd get in on your face while you were doing it again, and then they did one where they were kind of moving around or whatever. So it was it was funny to do it that many times. Having, you know, I, I share a lot of information. I, I do some speaking around the industry and, and share a lot of this information. So they they actually loved the fact that they didn't have to cut a whole lot. I just kind of went with the flow. It's, you know, it's really not that difficult when you do it every day and you're not just saying stuff to say stuff. This What I talk about is just what I do every day. That's one thing in this interview today. I will not share anything with you that I have not personally done myself. I mean, there's no fluff in this at all. It's just, here's what I do. And I can, I mean, it's really easy to tell somebody what you do every day. <laughs> sure. So anyway, it was fun. It was kind of, it was really a fun experience. Did you get paid for it? I did not get paid for it. And the better thing yet, I didn't have to pay for it. So, and then you got a copy of it that you can put on your website or, or what happened to the actual production? Uh, yeah, I've got a, I've got a link to it on our website. We've got it on there just, I mean, of course, well, let me back up, Mike, because you said, did I get paid for it? I definitely got paid for it. The business that we've gotten off of being an HGTV show has definitely been huge. There's a couple things on my main website, Corn Team, and everybody always thinks quarantine. No, it's corn, corn like the band, K-O-R-N, and team like a baseball team, dot com. Right there on the front page, I've got a couple video clips on there. One of them is the HGTV show. And the other one is just a some simple template book that we bought about the home buying process. But of course, I got to change the title and got full rights to the book. So it is the complete guide to buying a home in Kansas City. 
what was so funny is I ordered like, you know, 20 books to kick it off just to, you know, check it out, make sure it turned out right before I ordered a whole bunch. So what I did when I saw the postman come up, I thought, ah, grab the video camera. So I videoed the post, you know, man pulling up to my mailbox and driving off. And then I videotaped me walking up from the post, you know, box to my front step, which actually doesn't make any sense when you watch the video because the package is sitting on my front door, you know, and I open it up and it's a book. So things like that, like the HGTV show and I'm a published author, those are just things that that give the consumer confidence that they're probably on the right website or they're, they've found the right agent. Nice. Very good. Brad, you're in uh, Independence, Missouri. It sounds like that's in or around Kansas City. Yeah, it's actually a suburb of Kansas City. Our office is in Independence. I actually live, in, and most of our business is Blue Springs or eastern Jackson County, really. Jackson County is the east side from basically downtown Kansas City east out about three or four communities. So Blue Springs was home of David Cook, one of the American Idols. If anybody's an American Idol watcher, that they'd know where Blue Springs is. But we are just like 10 minutes from, uh, I don't even know if I should mention this. Well, this might somebody might listen to this interview in 10 years, and the Kansas City Chiefs and the Royals might be good then. Uh, we're like 10 minutes from the Kansas City Chiefs and Royals Stadium, so that's really fun. It's a, it's a pretty fun side of Kansas City, the Missouri side. So, yeah, it's, uh, Kansas City is, is like half of Kansas City is on the Missouri border, and half of the other half of Kansas City is on the Kansas side. So a lot of times people think Kansas City, Kansas – but Independence is literally just 10 minutes from downtown. Blue Springs is no more than 20 minutes from downtown. Since Kansas City is both in Kansas and Missouri, do you have to get licenses in two states? You do not have to. Obviously, it makes sense to. So, and that, you know, there's another funny story, too, because it is, I mean, Kansas City is over 2 million people. And I think, you know, what I have found is a lot of times we as realtors try to service everyone versus focusing in on a niche or or an area or whatever. And one of the things that I I heard that enough that I thought, I'm not going to worry about my Kansas license until I miss out on one or two sales in Kansas, because it's a lot, there's extra schooling. Kansas requires you to be in school a little longer. You know, when I was starting out, it took more money to get in Kansas. So I just... Unless I'm going to get a return on the money that I'm going to spend on anything in real estate, and I don't, and I have a plan in place to get a return on that investment, I don't do it. So for, gosh, I think five, six, seven years, I didn't even have my Kansas license because I wasn't doing enough business over there. Over the years, we get you know three, four, five deals over there, and you know any agent that refers me stuff, um, I always look at it first to see am I truly the best person to represent their client. And that's only because I know most agents don't do any marketing. I mean, they throw it in the MLS computer and wait for it to sell. And 60% of the properties in the MLS don't even sell the first time around. So something's not right there. So I'll look at it. And if I've got a great agent in that area that I know does a great marketing plan that I've seen at conferences and training and, and we mastermind and stuff like that, then I would just tell that agent to refer it over to them. But we probably help, I don't know, four, five, six people a year over on the Kansas side. And so you do have licenses in both states now? I do have, yeah, that was a long way to answer that, Mike. But yes, I do have licenses in both states. <laughs> they did a great job. Great yeah. job. All right. Well, please describe your current real estate market. Yeah, Kansas City um, is in the Midwest. I mean, we are like the heart of, of America, basically. We're like right in the middle. 
And, you know, we're a little sheltered from a lot of the stuff that, that people would see happening nationally around the country where, you know, we've never had a market, at least in my 22 years, where we went up 30, 40% in appreciation in one year, which means we also don't come down 30 or 40%. Kansas City is a very stable market. Um, and, and, you know, earlier, the 100 transactions a year sounds really impressive. Um, however, I make probably about 25% of what my California and Florida and Nevada and Arizona friends have made throughout their career. Uh, our average sale price is in the 140s. The average days on market is still around 120 days. Ours is up to about 84 days, up from basically about 34 to 40 days. We used to, you know, turn them over fairly quick, but the market just from uh, it was October of 2005 that our market basically turned. And if you go back and look, everybody thinks that 06 was the crash year. It was actually the very end of 05. It's just the media and the general public didn't pick it up until the beginning of 06. And that's when everybody said, oh, no, the sky's falling. Well, because we have created such a consistent, you know, business flow, I can I just summarize my business this way. I list 10, sell 10, list 10, sell 10, list 10, sell 10. I've been doing that for years and years and years. Well, in October of 2005, I listed 10 and sold five. November, we listed 10 and sold five. December, we listed 10 and sold five. So it only took me three months to figure out that, okay, something, I don't know what it is, but something weird's happening because I've never had this happen before. And what I realized and just you know, keeping in a business mindset at all times is that the inventory has now doubled in the last three months. And at least my inventory has doubled. And if I was selling things as fast as I was listing them, then the rest of the market has to have gone up as well. Does that make sense? Sure. Yeah. So I knew at that point, the inventory basically had doubled and people were buying things half as fast as, as they were before. So we were already on the phone in December with our clients, our sellers, you know, we're used to marketing things kind of on the, just right on the tip edge and, and causing that little move forward where we had to tell them that the inventory has doubled in the last three months. We're going to have to make some adjustments and get back to the middle of the list. We can't be at the top now. And man, we rode through that thing perfect. And that's why I think we, again, continue to do 100 sales even after the market turned. And it was just being ahead of the game. So the inventory, and this was another realization for me. I hope everybody's listening to this because this is a summary of real estate. Real estate is Econ 101. Remember Economics 101 in high school? It is supply and demand. And that was the whole, I mean, a whole new shift in my thinking of when we price properties now, that if the, if there's 10 houses on the market and mine is number nine or 10 on that list, I'm not going to be the next one that sells in a flat market. I've got to be somewhere around four five or six in the middle of the list just to have a shot. You know, we're going to have to at least be in the middle of the list if the market's flat and we don't necessarily want to be one or two on the list either because then my clients are leaving equity on the table. That How do you be the most competitive that you can be without being the cheapest or being the most expensive, you know, for the average house that's, you know, ready to sell? Obviously, you know, a distressed property is going to be at the low end, but a really, really nice house with everything in it still can't be at the high end. 
it's going to have to maybe be at number six or seven on that list of 10. Does that make sense? Did I, did I explain that? It does. Okay. Have you seen your market turn? Is it the market turned back to a positive market? It's Here's what it is. It's busy. Okay. It's busy and the inventory levels are cleaning out. See, and here's, here, this is interesting that this interview is going to come out when it is, because I hear agents all around the country saying, oh, we're slammed. The market's turned around. It's going great. And I really do feel like what's happening out there is we're all busy and we're selling more houses than we have in the past, but that's because the inventory levels have leveled out. They've gotten back to normal. What I'm seeing in Kansas City is we're busy, but there's not any appreciation happening yet. Does that make sense? Sure. It's not not like it got low enough that now people are you know getting 20 offers on a house and it's you know going for 10,000 over asking price. It's just we're starting to get multiple offers. Like one out of five, one out of six houses will get a multiple offer situation but it's not over asking price, you know? So we're just like on this cusp of the inventory levels have kind of leveled out enough that there's, there's buyers out there that are finally taking advantage of the incredible interest rates. However, it's going to have to stay busy like this for another six months or eight months through the summer for appreciation to actually start going back up is in my opinion. And so you're still recommending that your sellers price in the middle of the active price list. You know what? It's uh, I, I'm trying to push it. And whenever we go towards the top end, we get pulled right back into the middle. When, when I start them somewhere in the middle of the list, and, and it might even be spot six or seven out of 10, if it's a perfect property, I will get people through the front door. However, whenever we're like seven, eight, nine, or if, and we're just, I'm never letting anybody be at 10. There's just, it's a flat market. There's, you can't be ahead of the highest sale in a flat market. But even in those properties, either they're not getting shown or we're getting 40, 50 people through this house and not one offer. So it's when I start in the middle of the list, we usually sell that within 10, 15 showings or get an offer. Since we're on it, let's clarify that real quick. When you say the middle of the list, do you mean the middle of the active list or the middle of the sold list or the middle of the under contract list? Ah, that's a great question. It is the middle of the active list. However, when I do my pricing, it takes me literally 10 minutes to do a market analysis. And I can do an accurate market analysis within 10 minutes. I pull up three reports. When I, I, first thing I pull up is the neighborhood. And I know realtors love to put in bedrooms and baths and all this other stuff. Here, the three reports I pull up is I just want to know all neighborhood activity from the low end to the high end. Then I pull up, um, like in our marketplace, floor plans make a difference. A two-story or a ranch home sells a lot differently than our little split entries and some of that stuff. So I put in floor plan. I put in age range about 10, 10 years above, 10 years below, because I'm looking for an average, Mike. I'm not looking for a specific price. I'm looking for an average. And I'm also looking for the buying patterns of the buyers that are out there in the current market. So I've taken myself out of this mindset that I have to tell them a price that their house is worth. What I can do a lot better job at is telling them the range that their house will probably sell in. And then we'll see how that works. So let me, let me play this out. The first report is the neighborhood. I don't put anything else in other than I go back six months. Sometimes I'll go back a year. I need to get enough 
sold data that I can have a fair average. So if I do, if I go back six months and there's only two sales in the neighborhood, I will actually go back a year, sometimes a year and a half, as long as I get 10 sales, because then I've got a good average. You follow me on that? Sure. I've got a low, I've got a high. They may or may not be similar properties or that an appraiser is going to use, but that I'm not coming from the appraiser mindset right now. I'm looking for buying patterns and supply and demand. That's what I'm trying to figure out. On the next report, I do floor plan, I do bedrooms, and I do age range. And I leave it at that. I watch agents all the time that want to throw baths in there. And I got to be honest, in our market, whether it's a one and a half bath or a two bath, or whether it's a two and a half bath or a three bath, I do not see any consistent price difference in what somebody would pay for that house. And when I, when I say that, I mean, if I took two identical houses and added a full bath to one of them and left the other one a half bath, that house does not sell for more money. If everything else is the same, everything about it is the same. So I've, I've taken that piece out of the equation. I do floor plan, age range, and bedrooms. And then what that report does is it gives me for the whole MLS area, what is their type of house selling for? And again, I'm going to have beginner neighborhoods and I'm going to be, have upper end neighborhoods, but at least I'm getting a low, um, a high, and then I know what the average is. And then where I bring my expertise into those two reports, when we're looking at the sold data, I can see what the average sale price is for the neighborhood and I can see what the average sale price is for their house in that MLS area. And I know if I'm in an above average house or an above average neighborhood or a below average neighborhood and a below average house. So it allows me to move into that range. And I know if I'm in an average neighborhood and I'm in an average house for that neighborhood, then their house is going to sell where that average price is all day long. I've been doing this pricing method this way for probably 15 years, and it helps us get our sellers 98% of list price. The list price that we get it to when it finally sells, we get them within 97 to 98% of their asking price. And we were beating the market average by half the time. Whatever the market average is, we've usually been half of that by positioning them in the middle of the list and getting their price. So what I look at in those two reports is, those first two reports is, what are they actually selling for? That tells me what the sale price is. And then once I know it, let's just, to, for simplicity's sake, I've got an average, I'm sitting in an average house, I've got the average price for the neighborhood, and I've got the average price for their house in that MLS area. And let's just say it's 150000 And this house pretty much is a $150,000 house. The third report I pull up is who would our competition be if this thing hit the market? And again, don't get too detailed because buyers don't go around and say, hey, only show me two and a half baths, not three. You know what I mean? They say, hey, I need three bedrooms and here's my price range and here's the area we want to be in. That's where most searches start. Now, they might get a little pickier from there. But I just go with that generic report and I say, so how many three-bedroom houses and I'll do 20 years above and below the, the age range of my property. Because again, not too many buyers in my you know 1,500 properties that I've sold said, hey, only show me 25-year-old properties or only show me 40 to 50-year-old homes. They, they might say sometimes, show me anything newer than 10 years, right? I mean, they, they have specific criteria, but in general, most people say, I need three bedrooms, I can spend 150000 what's out there? 
And that's the list I pull up to know who my mass, who is my competition in that MLS area. The coolest thing about this is when you take that sale price, that average sale price, because I'm in an average home, and plot that on the entire list of actives, there might be 70 to 150 homes for sale that are three bedrooms, 20 years above and below in that MLS area. See, it's a pretty generic search, but I just want to see out of those 120 homes that are on the market right now, where's that sale price put me? And that sale price almost always will put you right around the middle to just under the middle part of the list of what's currently for sale. And so a lot of my great listing scripts came out of this, this 10-minute CMA. I mean, literally, I just run the one-line report. I can look at the sales in the neighborhood, the sales for their house in the MLS area, and how many houses are for sale that we're going to be competing with. And as long as I can position them in the middle of the list, uh, we're going to get people through the front door. And what it really allowed me to do is one of the scripts I give with my seller now is I say, now, before we go through this, we're going to look at solds, okay? I know you only know what's for sale out there, and I know a lot of realtors that you talk to will look at what's for sale. I'm going to help you determine what the buying patterns have been for the buyers in this market right now for your house. We're going to determine that first. And I'm just going to tell you right now, you're not going to like the number. And I'm going to tell you, I may not even agree with the number, but it is what it is, okay? Now, don't worry about that, though, because at the end, we're going to see where that puts us on the current list of houses for sale. And here's where we're going to come out ahead. See, what things are selling for are way down here. And I hold my hand, you know, real low, close to the table. I say, what everybody's asking for their house is way up here. And I hold my hand up way high, you know, so there's this big gap between my two hands. I say, what we're going to do is we're going to position yourself just underneath the crazy people. Because <laughs> they all want this, but they're all getting this. And so we're going to be able to ask more than what your house is selling for as long as everybody's overpriced, we'll come in underneath them and will look like or appear to be a better deal. Now, that's how we're going to help you get more money out of this market by positioning yourself right. And then I just kind of follow that up real quick. Now, if everybody's dumping their property out and the active prices are right there at the sale prices, then that's what it is, you know, and that almost never happens just about every market, the realtors are overpricing their properties and sellers still think their houses are worth more, especially right now. Everybody's in the mindset that everything's busy everywhere. And, you know, it might be the case for some markets here and there, but they're all starting to ask like where they think their house should be priced if we didn't have this down market. So if you can position your sellers where the sales are actually happening, then you're going to get more people through the front door. And if the, if their market is appreciating, then the sale prices will show it and you'll be able to price where the sale prices are. Does that make sense? Yes. So yeah, I heard a key phrase in there. You said you're positioning people where the sales are actually happening. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and actually I even made it even sound a little better than that too, because I said, we're going to get you more than what you should get in this market as long as everybody else is still overpriced. So, but yes, that is true. We're positioning it where we know the sale will happen. Once you go through that process of showing the three reports, going through your script, when you get to the end, how many people end up pricing where they need to be? Uh, Almost all of them. I mean, here's what happens. And until you actually do it this way, and until you master this little, this little process, 
they will always have a reason. Yeah, but my house has this and my house has that. Well, when your script is good and you've got this thing down, you say, well, what do you think it's worth? And then when they say, you know, 300000 or in this case, let's see, we were in a one fifty. they might have said one seventy five. So, okay, let's pull out that active list again. Now, if you were priced at one seventy five, you would be right here on the list. So out of 120 homes, they're at, you know, number 102. And I say, so if you were at 175, you'll be number 102 out of 125. That means that 100 people are priced less than you and only 19 are priced above you. So what happens is number seven, eight, and nine on the list actually makes number four and five look like such a better deal. They actually help their competition sell. You know, how I'm saying it is like, these people make their competition sell. We don't want to be one of those crazy people. You know, and that's the other one. I actually do use that crazy price. I said, when everybody's asking way out here, you know, we just want to stay underneath the crazy people. <laughs> and it's like this little setup that, that when this conversation comes up, they don't want to be a crazy person, you know. And all I have to do is say, okay, so where do you think your house belongs? Boom, show them where they are on the list. Say, now you're going to be priced above this many other homes. And I can even just flag a couple of neighborhoods just at the price range we were talking about, say this is actually a very competitive neighborhood. This one, uh, these are actually newer homes in here. This one, oh, that's a, I mean, that's a huge house. That's a two-story floor plan and you're in a split entry and they're going to be 10,000 less than you. Yeah, I just hate to see you lose your buyer. You, you, you're actually going to cause your competition to sell. So, and I don't have to really work that very hard. I mean, almost always they see where the where the price is that they thought they had in their head, and they know it's way too far up the list. That they all they almost always are saying, "Well, it looks like we probably need to be at," and that's what you that's the response you're going to get ninety five percent of the time when you know they thought higher before you walk through the front door. The numbers tell the truth. Brad, if you have a seller who insists on being in the crazy price world, what do you do? You know, a lot of times it just depends on where it is. If it's something that I'm going to waste my time and money on, I'm going to pass on it. If it's pushing it a little bit, like if they just really feel like they're at seven or eight, there's going to be a lot of extra work they need to do. The place is going to have to be immaculate. I'm going to have to be able to eat off the floor. We'll kind of strategize a little bit on marketing. I will still many times take a listing, I, and, and it, you got to be careful how you say it. I don't take bro- grossly overpriced listings, but I will tell you one thing I've learned in, in my 22 years of selling real estate and as many houses as I've done it, I don't know what that house is going to sell for. I'm probably the only realtor on the planet that will say, I have no idea what the final sale price of this house is going to be. And the only reason I can say that, and believe me, I use this as a script in my listing presentation too. The only reason I can say that is because I personally am not buying that house right now. And the people that determine market value are the buyers that are out there in the marketplace right now looking at 10 or 15 houses and having that comparison analysis going on in their head. In Kansas City, I can tell you, you can't just price a house 10000 more than anybody else and expect to get people. We are such a flat – we just move so slow. Nothing happens fast around here. I can have multiple offers. My personal residence, I just moved two years ago because a foreclosure came on the market just down the street, six doors down from where I live. I, I mean, I've been in my house eight years. I sold that house for 10000 more than I paid for it eight years ago. 
And that should have been three years of appreciation, right? So I should have sold that house if, as a seller and as a realtor. I should have sold that house for 15000 more than I did. But I had two people competing on that house at the same time, and I just tried to squeeze them up an extra $3,000, and they were both ready to walk. So that told me, you know what? It doesn't matter what I think something's worth. Here's two buyers fighting over a house, and I feel like I'm giving my house away. But really, I wasn't. I mean, I was picking up 70 grand equity on this foreclosure at the end of the street, and it's the castle in the neighborhood. So for me, it was a financial decision. But most sellers sitting in that spot will say, well, I'm not going to give it away. You're not giving it away. You got two people fighting over the house right now, and they're ready to walk on 3,000 higher. So the reality is, for real estate agents listening, is even though we're the professional, I mean, gosh, if anybody can be more professional and have a good read on a market, I think I've sold enough houses to figure this thing out. I still have sold houses that sold for more than I thought they would. I have several listings that haven't sold yet that should have sold $10,000 ago. So the, the reality is, if you want to be honest with yourself, the person that's going to tell you what the house is worth are the buyers. So let me give you a little bonus script on this, Mike. I use this in my listing presentation. If I know, well, I don't even, I just use it because I don't always ask if I'm up against competition. I, I really, uh, this kind of eliminates my competition for the most part. And so I'll say to the seller, based on everything I just told you and the way I've interpreted how things work, here's what I say to the seller. I say, now, if you're talking to another realtor or somebody tells you, oh my gosh, I can get you 175 for your house, or they say, you know, let's start at 175 and we can always come down, you know, if we need to. I say, here's the thing. If somebody tells you they can get you 175 for your house, and this is after we've gone through that report and I showed them where they are in the marketplace, they're going to be number nine on the list. All that's already happened. And I say, if somebody says they can get you 175, let me tell you two things. First of all, if anybody's going to get you 175, it will be our marketing plan. That I can promise you. But the second thing is, if somebody says you can get 175, and they're like, oh, you can get 175 for this all day long. If I were you, and then I pull some of my papers out of my folder and I slide them over to them, I say, I would pull out a contract, slide it over to them, and then I hand them my pen. I'm doing this to the seller while I'm there. And I hand them the pin. I say, so you'll buy it for that right now. That's what I would say to a realtor who told me that. You know, if they tell you some crazy price that's just off the chart awesome, pull out a contract, hand them a pin and say, so you'll buy it for that now and we can move on, right? And then the realtor's going to say, oh, well, uh, no, I mean, I wouldn't buy it for that. Oh, really? What would you buy it for? And ask them that question. So it, honestly, that has become my competition eliminator that nobody's going to buy this listing from me. So to answer your question, I will make a business decision at that time if I feel like they're a good investment, that they're going to listen to me, that we can do price changes. And if we're number seven or eight on a list out of 10, yeah, I still might do it. Or, you know, I run into some unique properties all the time that, you know, till I, I'll be able to tell you real quick once it hits the market. If we got people coming through the front door, great. If we have two weeks, not one showing, you've got to come down. I mean, the market's already responded. So I kind of play that one by ear. I, I will not take a listing that I know there's, there's just, I'm going to waste my money and they're not going to drop the price because they're just going to be mad at me later anyway. You know, it sounds to me, when you were going through that, it sounded to me like you like to use stories in your selling or objection handling process. Is that true? Do you bring in a lot of stories, a lot of examples of what has happened to other people? 
Uh, completely. Yeah. You, you picked up on that really well. And, you know, one thing, you know, even just helping agents and coaching agents, it seems like everybody wants to convince this person that you're the right person. They've got the, I call it the sales pitch. And a lot of times when you've got a really great, like the interest rates are low or, Whatever it is, um, I mentioned earlier that I coached loan officers for a little while. They would talk about how they could drop their payment down. One of the advices that I give to realtors is if you have an important message that you want to relay to somebody, like right now you're going to get the best price you're going to get for your house if you sell right now, well, rather than throw that out on the table, make them want you to give them that information. So that means you have to tell stories and ask questions to where they go, well, so what does that mean? And then when they say that, then I've laid it up and I'm slam dunking this shot says, well, what it means is this is the best price you're going to get right now. And I have that conversation with sellers all the time. I say, Here, here's the thing, Mr. and Mrs. Seller. And after our conversation, they're kind of looking, they're like, wow, it's just a tough market. So, you know, what would you suggest we do? I say, well, here's the deal. You guys need to make a decision today that you either sell now for the most you're going to get the house for, whether that's what you think is giving it away or not. What I can promise you is we will sell that house for the most that this market will bear. But your other alternative is you've got to plan on staying here for the next five years because it is not going to appreciate in the next 12 months. It might start to appreciate in the next 24 to 48 months, right? But we're already 9 to 10% behind the market. So if you wait two years, it might go up 2 to 3%. If you wait five years, we're going to just now get to the price that you were hoping I was going to tell you today. So my advice to people right now is if you want to move or there's any chance you're going to move in the next five years, we need to get you on the market right now and we need to get you bought right on the other side. We need to buy something at the low end of the next side so you can regain that equity. And then, Mike, I do exactly what I just said. I took my own advice. Two years ago, I put my house on the market. When a foreclosure hit the market, it was $70,000 in equity and I wasn't making any money on my house. I loved my house. But this was a castle in the neighborhood that I know from a resale standpoint, this is the house that everybody looks at every time they drive into the neighborhood and everybody wants it. There were 40 people that looked at that house in the first 24 hours and there were four offers. And I went $2,000 over asking price to make sure I got it because I knew that it was 70,000 less than the previous couple paid for it four years ago. Now, what I did was I gave my house away, is what I call it, and then I moved into that one, and I've just shifted my equity down to the next property. So there again, I go right back into another story of how exactly we help people take advantage of the market. And how even you as an expert have to adjust. Yes, that is exactly right. And In fact, even the whole example, I I mean, still the sellers say, well, I don't want to give it away. And I was like, man, I know exactly how you feel. I felt the same way. Use the feel, felt, found method, right? I said, let me just tell you what we just did two years ago. I felt like I gave my house away, but I really didn't. The market value was X and two people were fighting over it and I couldn't get close to what I thought I should have sold the house for. And I'm a real estate, and I would say, and I'm a real estate agent. I sell a lot of houses. So it just kind of brings it to reality. And, And see, the thing is, is that I'm not trying to 
wine and dine and, and I call it the dog and pony show. And I actually start out my whole listing presentation. I say, Mr. And Mrs. Seller, I, I don't want to, uh, you know, first of all, I just want to tell you, we're not going to go through the whole dog and pony show. I mean, if you're talking to other realtors, you're getting through the whole list of a hundred things they're going to do for you and all this stuff. I want to just talk about the few things that I know will get the most people through your front door. Is that okay with you? And it's just, all of a sudden it just gets real. And that, that is a nice setup for these stories and they know that I'm being honest with them. How long is your average or typical listing presentation? Well, I'm really big about relationship building. I mean, we truly have built our business, especially over the last seven years, our business just churns out out of our database. So here's a, a different mindset or awareness level of listings. For me, I want to go sit in front of as many people as I possibly can because my follow-up system is so personable. It's a personal touch and it's automated and it's consistent and it's persistent. Like I will go out on a listing appointment even though I know I'm probably not going to take the listing because I am so good at getting, staying in touch with them that if they sell anything in the next two to five to 10 years, we'll be the only person that's kept in touch with them and they're gonna refer me people along the way. So my listing presentation is about an hour. It's maybe even an hour and a half. By the time I get there, get through everything, wrap things up, put it back in my bag, it's an hour and a half. Really, though, what it is, it's just an hour and a half of really building a relationship with this person and, you know, giving them so much basic, well, not basic information, giving them so much knowledge that they walk out of that appointment and they don't feel like they've been sold anything at all. And, you know, I've got some other scripts, too, that if they are going to put their house on the market, I've got the hook, line, and sinker that will get them to sign right there if they're going to put their house on the market. So I'm in there building that relationship. Uh, yesterday was a perfect example. I got set up on an appointment. My, my assistant has full access to my calendar. I just open my calendar every day, and if it's in red blocks, that's an appointment I need to be at. And if it's white, I work on stuff. I make my calls and do whatever. She booked me on an appointment yesterday afternoon at 3 o'clock to go meet some guy at a lot in Raytown. Okay, this lot's probably worth $10,000. It's 45 minutes out of my schedule on a Sunday afternoon to drive out to Raytown, meet him at the lot, didn't know if I was going to have to run over to his house or not afterwards and then come back home. But that 45 minutes, I mean, I'm telling you, we were standing on the street in front of his lot. It's in an existing neighborhood, so it's not even like it's a prime deal. I mean, who's buying lots, right? This was a waste of time from the minute I saw the, the sheet. Not really a waste of time, though, in my perception, because this is another person that I get to meet that I get to stay in touch with. And I'll tell you, Mike, when I was leaving that appointment, he was like, you know, you're the first realtor that actually has met me out here. And he said, I've called other people and they've never called me back. I was like, well, no, man. I, I, I mean, if I were counting commission dollars, I wouldn't be here. You know, that's not why I'm here. I'm here to help you guys out and figure out what the best move is for you and figure out how to take advantage of the market. I mean, that's, that's why I sell as much real estate as I do. So, you know, it's 45 minutes out of a Sunday to go meet a guy, but I met a really nice guy and I'm the only guy that stayed in touch with him. He'll get a handwritten note in the mail. It was Sunday, so it's going out today. He'll get a handwritten note in the mail on Tuesday or Wednesday, says, thanks for meeting me out there. And it was a $10,000 lot. That will lead to business for me in the future. So I just, I'm the guy that goes out on a lot of appointments 
because that's more important than me being in the office, you know, printing off some report for expireds or FISBOs or cross-reference telephone numbers. I can do that in other times. I need to be in front of as many people as possible because we follow up with them so well. Let's talk about your marketing. Um, as far as marketing goes, I mean, we do a lot of things that just get exposure to the property and it's not your traditional marketing stuff. So I'll give you a perfect example. When I sit down at my listing presentation, the first thing I say is, you know, good news is Mr. Mr. Seller, we're not going to go through the dog and pony show. Okay. I'm just going to tell you about the few things that get the most people through your house. And this will lead to the marketing stuff, Mike. So I say, Mr. and Mrs. Seller, when most people sit down with an agent, here's their marketing plan. We put a sign in the yard. We run ads somewhere like newspaper ads. You know, not a lot of people are doing that anymore, but websites, that kind of stuff. We do open houses and we put you in the MLS. Okay. When I first got into real estate, the biggest challenge I had when I was marketing somebody's property was that I couldn't figure out was you can put a sign in your yard, you can run ads in, you know, for sale by owner magazines, and you could probably put it on a hundred for sale by owner sites for free. You can do open houses. The only thing the realtor was really bringing to the table was the multiple list service, right? Well, here's the truth about the MLS. The truth about the MLS is that 60% of the properties in our MLS system don't sell the first time around. So what that means to me is half the people, more than half the people aren't even getting it right. So the MLS is not selling properties. It makes your information about your property available. Now, what I do are the things that get the realtors to sit down, type in your address, pull your property up, call their buyer and want to go look at this house. The things we do get you pulled up in more searches and things like that. And so that's where I'll go into the marketing things. But let me just say one thing about that, because when I teach this to coaching clients and agents when I'm speaking, I say, now, some of you just got this. You just got a little ticked off when I said the MLS is worthless. Do you understand that we are in a competition here and I have to eliminate as much of my competition as possible? It is my job to win this listing if I want it. And secondly, is to take my competition out of the equation. When I dumb down the MLS, it eliminates all of my competition because that's all they have left. They, they say, and you got to be in this computer system with all the realtors. So I'll say, here's why the MLS, here's why 60% of the properties in MLS don't sell, is somebody types in bedrooms, area, price range, and you are going to come up in that stack, and actually what's going to print out is 50, 60, 70 properties, right? And it comes out in a big old stack, and the agent just hands it to their buyer and goes, here's everything that matches, let me know what you want to go see. And see, here's the cool thing, is they've already been there. They've already experienced this, so they know they've been here. Almost everybody has been there. And so what happens is I hand you a stack of 50 properties. As a buyer, you don't want to go look at 50 properties. In my 22 years, I don't think I've ever had anybody say, great, I want to go look at all 50 of them. And again, I'm telling stories. I say, I've never had anybody say, great, I want to go look at all 50 of them. And they'll laugh a little bit. And then they'll say, but what they'll do is they'll narrow it down to 10 that they want to go see. And see, again, they've been through this process once before, most of the time. So they're narrowed down to the 10 that they want to go see. Here's what that means, Mr. and Mrs. Seller. 10 people get picked out of 50. 40 people sit in the not look stack. As far as I can tell, that's pretty darn close to 60%. So what our job is, is to get the realtors to pull you out of the not look stack and add you to the look stack. And that's where our marketing really kicks in. Now, I'm just going to cover a few of those things today. So, and that's where I roll into that. So 
to answer your question on that, the things that we do is literally how do I get my property in the face of the realtors? Now, until the market turned, we had flyers. It sounds so simple. I mean, most people hear flyers. His marketing plan is flyers. Listen, we delivered flyers to every single real estate office in their box that had every one of my properties every week. Now, because I was marketing to realtors, see, they're just pulling up stacks of 50 and handing them to their buyers. They don't even know what's been missed. What I can tell you about an agent, though, is if they, they want to sell this buyer a house, and so if they see something in front of them every single week and they've got a buyer in that price range and they haven't shown it yet, it's just continually reminding them. The other thing that we do is we pay a more generous co-op commission than most people do. I have, and actually I use that to sell my higher commission at the listing is I say, you know, we pay better than 80% of the other listings out there. And Kansas city is one of these rare markets that there's an old number out there that many markets haven't seen in a long time that still exists here in Kansas city. Again, I go back to, I'm a dinosaur in real estate because I'm still charging this old number. <laughs> Just add one to 2% to whatever you charge. And that's probably close to where I am. I think that's as close as we can get to talking about commission. But again, what I do is I pay half of that out to the other agents. And so what I do, and, and again, you got to be careful how you tread here, because every, every time we start talking about commission, everybody like gets all scared. And uh, I say, here's the thing. An agent is not going to pick or not pick your house based on the commission amount that they're getting paid. I don't see a lot of that happening. But Mr. and Mrs. Seller, what I can tell you is when they see that they are making more, there's absolutely no reason to leave you in the not look stack. In fact, there's every reason just to pull it out and add you to the look stack. Whether or not you like the house or not, there's just an incentive there to add it to the stack. That's all I'm looking for is just one more piece of exposure that somebody else might have missed. Okay. There's just, what it does is it eliminates why they wouldn't put you in the stack. It takes that completely out of the equation. The second part of that is a lot of it has to do with staging and, and everything else for us to get people through the front door. So the second part of the marketing thing that we do is on our camera, we have a wide angle lens and we stage the house. And I, I don't even bring a stager in. I just tell them, I say, we can't have more than one or two things on every wall shelf and flat surface. We need to stage this property. And, I, and many sellers, a lot of times they're like, what? And I'm like, I'm telling you, it'll be worth it. Because think about the internet pictures. And I hold my hand up with my thumb and my index finger about an inch and a half apart. And I say, this is the size of an internet picture. Every little thing sitting around in this room makes it look busy, cluttery, smaller than it is. When you guys just, every single flat surface is wiped completely clean, and I take pictures with this wide-angle lens, it makes everything look bigger, and it makes your house stand out on the Internet. Heck, some agents don't even take pictures. I'm sure you've been to properties that don't even have pictures, or it's like they took a picture off their phone, and it's real dark, or it's just a corner of a bedroom. We use a wide-angle lens. We bring it into Photoshop and lighten it. And I can lighten just so the agent's listening. You can set up a, a pre-planned thing like in Photoshop that I can literally, just did it right before our call, I can lighten 300 pictures in about five minutes. 
and I've got different settings set up so that they all look great, like they're getting ready for a magazine. So the thing that I will tell you is that the second most important thing on our marketing is the fact that when, even if you don't have a wide-angle lens, stand outside the doorway. Get that camera angle as wide as possible. Get furniture pushed out of the front of the house. I'm going to post on a website a picture of a, where somebody has a dresser, one of the tall dressers in their master bedroom right by the front door. I mean, how many times do you see that in real estate? <laughs> All the time. It's got that tall dresser right inside the front door. And then they have their other dresser on the other wall right up to the door. Well, what it looks like is it's a, the bedroom looks like it's about a body width thick. And I had them move the dresser. I had them take out all the small furniture and slide a couple of things over. And this room looks twice as big. In fact, their master bedroom bed was in the middle of the room. And I had them slide it up to about, I don't know, six inches from the wall. And it doubled the size of the room. So now when I take a picture standing in the doorway and get that angle as wide as possible, it just looks unbelievable online. And that's another way that we get people through the front door more often. We're making them stand out. We put as many pictures as our MLS will let us. I'm telling you, if you are not taking pictures or you're not really focusing on your pictures looking better than average, you're already losing them before you can get them through the front door. The other thing... I'm giving you some really simple things here that anybody can do, but I'm telling you, these things are huge, huge marketing differences. So the next one, Mike, is the MLS listing itself. So many listings are missing so much information, whether it's square footage. Here, here's what it is. In our MLS, 50% of the homes do not have square footage filled in. It's not a required field. A third of the listings don't have the elementary, junior high, and high school filled in. A lot of times you won't see room sizes or details on the rooms or anything. So here's another marketing thing. And this is the stuff I tell the seller. I'm sitting with the seller that this is what sets us apart. Because all I have to say is, you know, have you guys ever done any searches and like half the information's missing or the pictures are really bad or anything like that? They're like, oh my gosh, yes, it's horrible. I hate not knowing how big the house is. So whatever reason you've ever had in your mind that you don't put square footage in, which a lot of people are afraid they're going to get sued if they measure it wrong or they've just never done it that way. You know, it's a perfect example. I love that story. Have you heard the, the Christmas story of the ham where the daughter is having Christmas at her house and she cuts like three inches of the ham off, throws it in the pan and they cook it. And then one her daughter comes up and says, why'd you cut the end of the ham off? I don't know. Grandma always did it. Go ask grandma. Grandma, why'd you always cut the ham off? I don't know. Great grandma always did it. Okay. So great grandma, why'd you cut the end of the ham off? Well, cause my pan was never big enough. We had to cut the end of the ham off. You know, it's like the square footage thing. It's just like people haven't done it for so long. We don't even know why we're not doing it. So here's my pitch at the listing presentation. I say, you know, have you ever done any searches and it's missing information like say square footage or schools are like, oh yeah, every time they're going to say, yeah, we hate that. I said, so I play on that. And I say, see, 50% of the agents in RMLS don't fill in square footage. A third of them don't fill in the schools. All it takes is one buyer, the one buyer who might pay you full price for your house to be working with an agent who filled in square footage. And because it's a computer search, you won't come up in that search. Mr. Miss Seller, that's why 60% of the properties don't sell on MLS because they're missing information. So we fill in every single blank. So I'm going to tell you, here's the marketing tip number three is fill in every single blank. 
whatever your reason has been in the past, I'm telling you, your MLS is a computer search, and it's being filtered out to a ton of other websites. And if somebody's searching for something in one field that you left blank, you won't come up. I fill in the acreage spot. And I, I mean, we're 90% residential real estate. I put 0.2 acres. I fill it in because it's a blank. It's a spot. I want it filled in. And so that alone just even rings true to a lot of sellers. So there's just a few things. I mean, those are so simple. So there's nothing, there's nothing crazy about what we do. I mean, I, I will tell you the one other thing that we use is a, a, one of the IVR systems, the interactive voice response systems. It's an 800 number that you call in and listen to a recording. And as high tech as I am as an agent, I'm, I'm a pretty techie realtor. I've been down the road of QR codes. I, I mean, we were on QR codes six, seven years ago before everybody even knew what they were. We were already talking about them. The text writers, all that stuff, the flyer boxes. So here's, here's my next marketing piece I'm going to give you. And this is what I use in my listing presentation. I say, so Mr. Reseller, let me, here's how we, another way we get your house exposed to the most amount of people. I say, have you ever driven by a sign? I mean, basically just the sign in the yard, realtor's name and telephone number. I mean, who really wants to call a realtor anyway? Nobody really wants to talk to us. We're salespeople. They just want to know how many bedrooms and what the price is, right? So they can just jump online and figure out the price of this house. So then you got the other realtors out there that they do the flyer box. And the way I'm presenting this is kind of a setup, but, and they got the flyer box out front. You guys like flyer boxes? Oh, we love flyer boxes. I know flyer boxes, people like them because when you're buying a house and you drive by a property and it has a flyer box out front, you can grab the flyer. I bet I can guess what you don't do next. And that's call the realtor, isn't it? Oh, yeah, no, we've never called the realtor. I mean, really, they never really do. Say, because you got all the information you need from the flyer. Mr. Ms. Seller, I'm here to sell your property. I've got to talk to people. So waiting for them to call me on a sign or grabbing a flyer and giving them all the information is not how we do it. We found something even better. And it's just a rider that goes on your sign. It's a 1-800 number, free call. In fact, it says right on the sign, free recorded message. So they can just call this 800 number, put in a three-digit code, and they can hear everything about your house. The cool thing is I can tell them everything because the system, caller ID captures their number. It pages it to us instantly, and we call them back in five minutes or less, which is the key right there. There's so many people that have tried an 800 number before and said it didn't work. And I guarantee you, they did not call those people back in five minutes or less. In fact, probably about three minutes or less would be your goal. But you call them in 10 or 15 minutes, or you call them a half a day later or the next day, forget it. You're wasting your time and money on this 800 number. So we call them back in five minutes or less. Now, I'll be honest with you, we, it goes off constantly. So we get about 70% of them called back. But there's 150 calls coming through that system every single month that we are getting paged their number and calling people back. So I know there's other things out there like uh, you'll probably hear somebody talk about QR codes if they even know what that is or the text writers. And here's the one thing I'll tell you about getting the most exposure to your property, Okay. If I drive 100 people past a house that has an agent's sign in the yard, their name and number on the sign, how many of those 100 people will pick up the phone and call that realtor to get information? Okay. Put a flyer box in there. Again, 100 people drive by. How many people will jump out and grab the flyer? And they'll say most of them, you know, 80 or whatever. And how many of them will call the realtor? One or two, maybe. 
great. I put a text writer out there and 100 people drive by this property. How many people will get their phone out while they're sitting at the curb and text to get information on this property? And again, it might vary on areas like I'm sure the, the Silicon Valley might be a little different. But I'm telling you, if 100 people drive by a text writer sign, maybe six, five, I don't know, in our marketplace, maybe 10 or 20 in a high-tech area, right? How many people will get out of their car, walk over to the sign, and scan a QR code? None, okay? How many people will call a free recorded 800 number message? 100 people drive by this property and it says an 800 number free recorded message. How many people will call? Notice I didn't give any answers here, but in your mind and everybody listening knows that that 800 number response is going to be four, five, six times more than any of those other options. Does that make sense? I mean, did you, did you kind of think that? Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, who's not going to call an 800 number free recorded message. So sometimes, you know, technology, we try and get real techie and you got to really look at what's getting the best results. And so our 800 number, I've been with them for over 15 years. And it, in a hot market, it generates 400 calls a month every month. In the slower market, it's been around 150. But understand that we put the 800 number everywhere. So when we do some other thing, I mean, I do some mass marketing. I do, I've got the back page of the real estate book. But quite honestly, I mean, the things I've just explained to you is how we're really truly getting the most exposure to the property, to that property. Now, a quick word from our sponsor, RealGTV, real estate agent lead generation television, where top agents reveal exactly how they create consistent flows of home buyer and home seller leads into their practices every month. Need more leads? Hit the pause button right now. Open Google and search RealGTV. That's R-E-A-L-G dot TV. Now, back to the show. Right, and you're, you're selling that to your seller. You're exposing that information to the seller, and you're presenting it in the best light so that you look like the, the best candidate. And you're also going through items that you would assume people would know, but you're pointing them out because many of the agents probably don't, and that makes you a step above. Oh, man, if, if you just took this interview, wrote down those things right there, which anybody listening can do everything I just said, if you just cover that in your listing appointment, I'm telling you, if you are up against competition, they don't bring anything anymore. They don't even bring CMAs hardly anymore. I, I mean, I cannot tell you how many appointments I've been on where they're like, man, this is just so much information, you know, is this is, and, and it's not like overwhelming. Like now I can't decide. I've already helped them make the decision. They're just like, I can't believe how much work you've done here. It took me 10 minutes to do the CMA. Right. So, I mean, it's like how much work you've done here and how much information you've given us. And they're like, the last realtor didn't bring anything. They just told us they thought our house should sell this and we can give it a try. <laughs> I mean, it's like no competition. It's the competition eliminator. Brad let's do this let's switch gears for a minute let's talk about lead generation you've got a couple different ways that you're bringing business into your organization it looks like your two major ways that you're doing that are your past clients sphere of influence which account for about 60% of your business and also farming which accounts for about 30% of your business let's go through a couple quick questions on your your past clients sphere of influence your referral and repeat business let's talk about that first I assume you've put together a database. How big is your database? Yeah, we've got 5,000 contacts in our database. Wow. Of those 5,000, how many are past clients? 
Well, about 1,500. 15 to 1,800 are actual past clients. Probably about 2,000 realtors. We, we bring in probably a couple referrals a month from agents all across the country just from all the years of attending conferences. And everybody I meet, if we have a conversation, I'm getting your information. I'm probably dropping you a handwritten note in the mail, and I'm putting you on a follow-up system. And I don't care whether you're a realtor, if it's from a networking event, if it's a past client, whatever. And in those follow-up plans or my automated campaigns that are built in my database, we are working in more personal touches, phone calls throughout the year, um, and finding you on social media and sending you messages. So when it comes to past clients in Sphere, it literally is just picking up the phone going, hey, I actually just found some old recordings where I was showing my team some scripts and I was on my three-year calls. So I was just calling people up going, hey, it's Brad Gorn. How you doing? And they're like, oh, hey, Brad, what's up? It's like, hey, do you know you've been in your house three years? Can you believe it's been three years? And they're like, oh, man, yeah, I guess it has been, you know? So I'm just, my calls are just, with my sphere, are just touching base. And again, this is a whole other system that I, I wrote a 16-week course on how to turn your database into a gold mine. And, but what I do, it's really just what I do every day. And when I coach agents, I tell them, when you stay in touch with people on a more personal level through phone calls and personal messages on Facebook, not something you post on the wall and hope they see it, but when you're communicating with them, you know, several times a year, you don't have to remind them that you're a realtor. Okay. So, and, and I want to put this in perspective because you go to a lot of training seminars and stuff. I'm not saying to not do anything you haven't heard in the old days, like, hey, say, who's the next person you know It's buying or selling real estate? I don't have to use that script very often because I stay in touch with them more regularly that when I call, I don't have to tell them I'm a realtor. In fact, my conversations are really generically built around feeling them out for if they do know somebody that needs real estate. There's a lot of times where on my coaching clients, when they're reconnecting for the first time with their database, like right now, most of the listeners, I don't care if you have 100 people in your database or 1,000 people or 10,000, I bet you I could ask you, have you talked to everyone in your database in the last few weeks? And in fact, I'll even narrow that down. Have you talked to every one of your past clients in the last few weeks or few months, every single one of them? And if the answer is no, then really just reconnecting with people in your database, starting at A and going to Z and pick up the phone and call every single one of them. Don't automatic email them. Don't send out some blast letter that says, hey, it's a new year. I was thinking of you. I've got a new resolution to work with people. No, I'm talking about picking up the phone from A to Z, call every single person, and then write them a handwritten note. That call doesn't even have to be about real estate. I mean, just get reconnected. That's one of the first things I coach people on is get reconnected first. Everything else that follows can be your brand or, you know, like every other contact that we send out actually ask for a referral, but every other one doesn't. I mean, we're just there to connect with them. How are you doing? Now I'm going to pick up referrals just by having a conversation with them on the phone. So how's everything going? Oh, yeah, kids are good. Uh, you know, Lindsay's going to college next year. It's like, really, have you guys figured out how you're going to pay for college? Yeah, you know, college is expensive. And then so that could lead to a whole conversation on how they might want to start investing in some real estate. 
you know, it's too late for Lindsay now to pay for college, but that would be an open door. Like, wow, you, you know, you could have had college paid for. So it just, those calls are just to have conversations with people. It will always come back to real estate. I mean, how many times do people call people in their database? And, and like, if I were just calling these people for the first time, Hey, it's Brad, how you doing? They're like, Oh, how I, man, how's the real estate market going? Like you're going to tell them some horrible story. We don't have to tell them we're in real estate. They already know. <laughs> so our follow-up plans really, truly just keep us connected with them. That when I say my phone just rings, it literally just rings. Because if the word real estate pops in your mind, Brad Corn's the first one you think of if you're in my database. Let's talk about those follow-up plans and break a couple of the major ones out. I assume you've got a follow-up plan for your past clients. What does that look like? Are you trying to contact them a certain number of times during the year? And, and if so, how are you doing that? You know, Is it through a phone call, direct mail, email? What are you doing? Yeah, it is the mix of everything is the perfect, perfect uh, recipe. Here's the way I'll put it. We have a 33 touch. We touch them 33 times a year. Everybody pretty much stays on the 33 touch after we've met. When I meet somebody for the very first time, we will hit them with eight contacts in eight weeks. And those contacts are all mixed mediums. The 33 touches a year are mixed mediums. And, and think of it this way. What are, the, what are the senses of the human being? It's like seeing, touching, feeling, smelling, or something like that, right? So we want them to see something, see us pop by their house or something like that. We want them to hear us through an actual phone call. We want them to feel good with some of the stories that we send out on how we help people walk out of closing with money. The only thing I haven't figured out yet is smell. And once I figure out a scratch and sniff kind of mailing piece or something, <laughs> I will be all over it. <laughs> um, but it's touching all the senses and too many people today throw people on automatic all email drip campaigns or, you know, not too many people are doing the mailing as much anymore. I'm telling you, the secret formula is mixing it up and having all of it. But if I could suggest anything, and again, this is what I coach clients on is get rid of the email, forget email even exists. That is just extra because if you have a monthly email going out, and I know this for a fact from coaching loan officers, we could actually track their electronic newsletter that they sent out every month. The system could actually tell us how many people saw it, how many people actually stayed on it for however long they stayed on it, and then if they click something. And, you know, again, loan officers are marketing to realtors, so they would be sending out 200 newsletters each month to the top realtors in their marketplace. I said, how many people clicked on a link? And it was like three or four every time. And it's like, so you felt good when that email went out last month, like you were working and you were actually lead generating, but only three people actually clicked on a link. How many of those people called you and gave you a loan? None, right? So... We have gotten into this thing, again, where technology, uh, I'm, I'm the most biggest proponent of technology, but I'm telling you, one of the statistics that I've heard through studies is that any more than seven emails in one year is ineffective. And in fact, it's even worse than that, because if you send out a monthly newsletter, there is a chance that that has been snagged as spam and they're not getting any of the emails. 
So we mail, we email, we call, we find them on social media and touch them that way. That way, if one piece of that 33 touch piece is missing, it's not going to affect my follow-up plan that much. The second thing I'll tell you about it, by mixing up the mediums that you're sending it out in, is as far as I can tell, the letters and the emails and all that automated stuff does not convert business. I mean, it is just the link in between the next personal touch. It is the personal touch every single time that's going to get you a 10 to 100 times better return on the mailing by following up with a phone call saying, hey, just wonder if you got my letter last week. Oh, yeah, we did. Man, it's weird you called today because we're getting transferred or our neighbor just said he was just complaining that his realtor next door because you're a real estate agent. They know you are. They're going to be like, man, I was just, how bad is the market? Because my neighbor was, you know, whining and complaining about his realtor's not doing anything. Oh, really? Can you get me an appointment with them? You know, there's business. So it's, it's the personal touches. As much as people don't want to hear this and they think it takes too much time, just focus on five people a day. If you just picked up the phone and started in your database and you called the first five A's the next today, the next five A's tomorrow, the next five B's the following day, the next five C's the following day, do you realize that you would personally talk to 1,200 people over the next 12 months? It's 100 people a month at five a day. And if you just wrote five handwritten notes a day, man, it's talking about taking that one to two to three hours each morning, Just and it's not going to take you an hour to call five people. But if you just blocked it out and made the call, write the notes and put them on a consistent, persistent follow-up plan that's not all email or not all mail, and it's a mix of everything, you can double or triple your business this year. It's not difficult at all. You said you're doing 33 different touches. You said the calls are the most productive. Do you try to call each lead a certain number of times throughout the year? Well, actually, I don't even think about it. Mike, the, the difference between a database and a contact management system is a contact management system allows you to manage your leads. Let me put that to you differently. Outlook is like a basically an electronic Rolodex. It is when you're looking for somebody's number to call them, you can search and find them real quick in Outlook. You go to something like a top producer, My Red Tools, eEdge if you're Keller Williams, um, Online Agent is another real popular one. Those have these automated campaigns and action plans built into them that you can customize and do a lot of different things with. What I do is when I put a contact in, I just start the 33-touch plan. And every 12 days, my system is doing something. It's either printing a letter out that we got to shove in an envelope and mail, or it sent an email automatically, or it popped up on my calls for the day and says, call this person. Or it says it's a to-do to go find them on social media. And then when the plan's over, the 34th step says restart them on another plan. Well, all I do is restart them on the 33 touch again. You're just kind of on that forever. Because we know, again, studies, and there's the book that I'm sure plenty of people have talked about is The Millionaire Real Estate Agent. It is the Bible on how to build a successful real estate business. And pages 133 through 148 are what I've based all of this on. Pages 133 through 148 of Millionaire Real Estate Agent. It is when you meet somebody for the first time, you need to brand your. You need to just like, I mean, picture a hot brand going right onto a cow's hide. You know, you need to brand you in the real estate spot. So they get eight contacts in eight weeks. 
that pretty much brands me. And, and a perfect example, Mike, that I've given in the past is if I give you a product and you just started naming as many, as many brands as you can think of, the studies have shown that the human brain can remember about seven brands. Every time I do this study with every kind of webinar or class I'm teaching or whatever, we can remember about one right away and a couple real quick. So, for example, if I said tennis shoes, what's the first thing you think of? Or name as many brands you can think of, tennis shoes. Nike, Adidas, Puma, okay. Converse. <laughs> Great. Now, if I said potato chips. Uh, Lay's, Doritos, I'm running out. Yep. And then one more, <laughs> toothpaste. Crest, uh, Colgate. Yeah, so you need to be the Nike, the Lays, and the Crest in everybody's mind under real estate. And the way those companies did it was consistent, persistent, never-ending follow-up. I mean, think about it. Do you even have a tube of Crest in your in your bathroom? I don't even know if I buy that brand all the time, but it's the first one I think of. You know what I mean? So what this consistent, when I hit them eight times in eight weeks, it moves me into the Nike, the Lays, and the Crest. Here's another thing to back it up. We've heard the statistics from the National Board of Realtors that 78% of all sellers list with the first agent they meet, right? And I think it's like another 16% will meet with two agents. So it's like over 92, 93% of the time, you have to be the Nike or the Adidas, or you're not even going to get the listing. You don't even know you missed out on the listing. So when we meet somebody and they get a handwritten note, the handwritten note forces me to at least not just put a total stranger on this plan because it won't work. It's somebody that I've had a conversation with that I can write a note to about them. And then I hit them eight times in eight weeks with a lot of different mediums. So I'm hitting them from all different angles. And I just became the Nike. It is the 33 touches a year through the studies in the book that they interviewed 24 agents that made a million dollars in commission. It is the 33 touches that keeps me there. Does that make sense? It does. And of those 33 touches, how many are phone calls? Four of them are phone calls. It is once a quarter. That's, and that was something I had to change because I only had one phone call in there when I first set it up. And it was in six months I would call them. And we have moved into a new world of marketing and we have gone back to the personal referral. I'll give you a perfect example on this and why it's four calls. And there's actually four more personal touches. So it's eight personal touches a year. But let me give you an example. In the 1800s, you know, the guy that sold the black elixir that made your headache go away, he'd roll into town with his covered wagon and he'd set up shop down at the end of the main street. People would look around, a couple people would wander over there, and he'd give them a sample, and then they'd go tell people, hey, this stuff makes your headache go away, and he'd sell that town out, and then he'd move on to the next town. In the day of day and age of television, when they run an aspirin commercial, now they can reach millions of people instantly, and Bear Aspirin became you know, the huge aspirin company. Well, today, we've got so much stuff coming at us so fast all the time, our brain can't even process it. And so now, when you have a headache, you don't turn on the TV to see what the next commercial is. You're sitting next to the guy in the cubicle going, gosh, I have a migraine. Oh, extra strength Tylenol. I get it all the time. It makes it go away instantly. And then you run down to CVS or Walgreens or something and go to the aspirin aisle, and what do you see? 
a gazillion different brands. There's daytime, nighttime, anytime aspirin that all of a sudden you just like grab whatever is the best price or whatever grabbed your attention. It's not even what was probably recommended to you. So we've gotten overwhelmed back to the point where people are now saying, yeah, we're thinking about selling a house. Oh man, call the quarantine. They're, they're the best. Does that make sense? Sure. Back to personal recommendation or personal referral. Yeah, exactly. Seth Godin covered it in The Purple Cow. I mean, it's like in the first four pages of the book, and it was like, that is exactly what we're back to. So this is why I say, give up this all automated stuff. I live by this motto that is, if it's easy, it's not going to work. And I say that in my mind, I actually say, if it's easy, if, like if I'm looking at a new marketing plan and it's real easy to do, write a check and it'll be automated, I can automatically say it's not going to work as well as I thought it would. And if it's going to take a little more time to do, I'm going to get a better result. So taking that hour or two hours to call five people, write five notes is getting me six times more business than this automated stuff to, from the same people. And so those are your personal contacts. You're making four phone calls and four personal notes per year? Yeah, what it is, is every quarter a phone call will pop up. And you you got to understand, here's the other part of it, Mike. If I have to remember to do it, it's not going to happen. Okay, I'm just going to be totally honest with you. If I have to remember to make that call in four months, three months, four times a year, it's never going to happen. My system has that call built in that when I start, if I start you on the 33 touch today, three months from today, it will pop up on my list, which is the first thing I do in my contact management system is it says, call Mike today. He's been on the plan for three months. Call Mike today. He's been on the plan six months. Call Mike today. It's been nine months. And then in between each of those, every month and a half, it will pop up and say, to do, find Mike on social media. So I'll Google you on social media. I'll say first link that pops up is Facebook. I'll click on it and I see we're already friends. So then I'll go back to Google and see if there was another one. Oh, there he is on LinkedIn. I'll go to LinkedIn and we're not connected yet. So I'll connect with you there and send you an invitation. And I will actually change that stupid message that says, I would like to add you to my database. Yeah. What? It says, Mike, hey, it's been a little while since we talked. I just realized we weren't connected on LinkedIn. What the heck? You know, and then you get that from me, you're I'm in. You know, I'm not it's not some stranger who's trying to add you to another list. We're just connecting. And now so I'm hitting you from eight different angles each year, which again is medium. You know, and then in between that you're getting some emails, very few, and some letters. Very good. Let's do this. Let's move to your farming. You said you're doing some farming. You're generating about 30% of your business from farming. What kind of farming you're doing? How's that working out? Yeah, this is, uh, I mean, this is a pretty big commitment for the most part, and you need to plan to do it for a long period of time if you really want to pay off. What we know about mass marketing, what's the numbers you've heard on returns of just doing mass marketing? What percentage do you think you get back in business? They like to throw around 1%, but that's if you're extremely lucky. It's usually a, a percentage of a percent. Exactly. So in the studies in the book, and that page is 133 through 148, they actually say it's a 50 to 1 return, which is actually 2%. And the only way it backs up the 2% is that it's consistent, persistent for a long period of time. Most people kind of do it, they're like, oh, I'm going to do a mailer to a neighborhood by month. You know, they put the postcard together, they're all excited about it, they mail it out, woo, here comes my business. You know, you're going to expect the phone to just ring off the hook in about three days, right? 
Remember, if it's easy, it's not going to work as well as you hoped it would. <laughs> That's where this came from. The second month, you know, it's like five days before mail date, and you're like, oh, crud, my postcards. So you throw them together real quick. You get up down to the post office the day after it's supposed to hit the mail, and you get them in, and everything's good. Third month, it's like, oh, crud, that's like tomorrow. You get them to the post office three or four or five days behind schedule. The fourth month, you remember it a week after, and you're like, oh, dang, I forgot to do my postcard. Eh, it wasn't working anyway, right? I mean, that's just a typical day in the life of a realtor doing marketing. We have a consistent, persistent 15,000-piece mailer that goes out every month, and it's completely hands-off because if I have to remember to do it, it ain't going to happen, and I pay a huge price for it. I actually, well, it, it's going to cost you fifty to $70,000 to a 15,000-piece mailer to a neighborhood every month. And that's only just 10 months. We don't mail in November and December. We just take those months off, but I still get business from it. I've been doing that for 10 years to get that 30%. Now, I will tell you the only reason why I do that. First of all, it does pay for itself. It probably gets me about a one and a half to two times return on investment, which I don't do a lot of those plans. Everything I look at when I do marketing, I want a five to 10 times return or I won't do it. There's so many cool things realtors are doing that I don't do because it's only getting a two times return. If I'm going to spend a dollar to get two back, I personally am just going to keep my dollar. <laughs> if I'm going to spend a dollar and get five back, hey, I'm going to put a plan in place and make that one work because I will spend a dollar to get five back. But I'm not going to spend a dollar to stress out during the time of getting my extra dollar back. You know what I mean? So I really look at plans and return on investment. So this has been 10 or 15 years that this goes out to the same houses. It costs 70, 60, 70,000, and I make 90 to 100 profit off of it. Where it really pays off for me is that every listing we get from this listing mailer, and specifically designed to get listings, is we have a plan in place that we're going to get three buyers off every listing. So that's where I get my three to five times return, is that by having those signs in the yard, by having that 800 number up, the minute I pull out of their driveway is already starting to generate calls. By the time we fill in every single blank on the MLS and we're already getting hits on the internet and all this other stuff, we've set up the system to get us three buyers from every listing. Now, what really happens, we probably end up getting about one and a half buyers off every listing. So I'm probably at about a three to four times return off of that mailer. Does that make sense? It does. It does. Okay. Now, just to clarify, I, I may have misunderstood. You said you're spending about fifty to 70000 per year, correct? Yes. On just that mailer alone. What are you mailing out? Is it a postcard? Is it a newsletter? What exactly is going out? Oh, great, great question. I think the magic pill to this thing, it, it is a trifold flyer. It's color copied. Basically, the gentleman that I run it through, he prints out a template full color, I mean, does whatever, 500,000 copies twice a year. And it's a template that has all the color stuff on it so he can get the printing done real cheap. And then he runs it through a machine and just adds the customized monthly stuff. So when you trifold this thing, it's the outside panel that is the magic because it says, you know, Waterfield Specialist in big, bold letters. And then there's a little monthly blurb about what's going on in the marketplace, which that's not even the key piece there. It's the 
highest price sold in the neighborhood is in big bold. The average days on market is on there. The average price is on there. And I'm the neighborhood specialist. Now, the key is the high price is in bold and it's a little bigger than everything else. So that's the first thing they think their house is probably worth, right? Secondly, I'm the neighborhood specialist that mails to them every month for the last probably 12 years. Every month. I mean, people have these things hole punched in binders. When I come to their house, they've kept every one I've ever mailed them. I'm like, are you kidding me? But it's, that's the magic piece there. The inside of the flyer, when they open it up, just is our normal blurb about everything we do and talks about our marketing and, and stuff like that. They, anybody listening can – I'm setting up a website for you guys. It's at corntim.com. Remember, it's corn, not quarantine. K-O-R-N-T-E-M.com forward slash M-M-A because Mastermind Agent is the one that put this together. So that'll be under MMA, and I'll have samples of the monthly mailer. I'll have all of our touches in there. I'll have all kinds of stuff for anybody listening to this that wants to download any of it and use any of it or, or use it as an example. But that mailer, I mean, inside it talks about us. They don't even care about that. What, what I'm getting that listing from is by being the neighborhood specialist and I'm showing that I'm tracking activity. And what's so, it'll even say how many sales in the last 12 months, 15 sales in the last 12 months. They just, they think it's all mine, you know, just because it's pulled from MLS, but it comes from me. The inside has a list of all the sales in the prior month? Uh, no, we don't list them out. We just do the average high-low. Average high-low. In fact, that's really important too. Clear back to our first reports, pull up the average high-low stat thing with your one-line report because that's real quick to show them out of 15 sales the average price is 142 for your neighborhood you know so I use that stat high low price that's why I love this piece so much because it's how I price all my properties if I'm in an average house it's the average price if I'm in an above average house we might push you to number seven on the 10 slot and if it's below average I'm going to probably keep you around one to four depending on how below average on this farm, this 15,000 home farm. How did you pick the farm? It's a little bit of work. Um, the, the guy that does the mass mailing just basically gave me a list of neighborhoods. Um, what we actually ended up doing is picking the neighborhoods that turned over the most. There were some really cool neighborhoods in there, but they only sell like one house every three years. I just don't even add those in there. I mean, if I'm going to do that, I'm going to I'm going to go drive to that neighborhood, knock on the doors, and get to know everybody. But if we've got a 500 home neighborhood that's turning over 50 properties a year, that's one that's definitely staying on the list. You're not sending out 15,000 identical pieces. Each neighborhood is customized to it. So you might have 500 pieces that are going out to neighborhood A, and you're saying you're the expert in neighborhood A, and you have another 700 pieces that are going out to neighborhood B, and you're saying you're the expert in neighborhood B. Is that correct? That is correct. And that also makes it a lot more difficult to pull off, right? Sure. But easy doesn't work as well as I thought it would. So by doing some mass postcard to 15,000 homes, it's too generic, isn't going to work. It is not going to work. So yes, it will take, it'll take some thought and it'll take some planning and it's not going to be cheap, but you are getting very specialized. And then, man, if you just add that into your product, like really somebody listening to this, honestly, you're going to pick one or two neighborhoods and you're going to start there and be the neighborhood specialist, get your piece worked out figure out what works, figure out the stuff. You can 
add neighborhoods later. Like, don't go sign up for a $15,000, $70,000 ticket item tomorrow. But also, don't expect to get 10 listings a month from two neighborhoods. But get the tweaks worked out, and then just it allows you time to find out what's working, get some listings, let those listings pay for the next neighborhoods. When you get some listings in those neighborhoods and you sell, you'll slice off 30% of your commission check and put it in a pot and add the next neighborhood and the next neighborhood. These are the kind of things I coach people on. It's like, let your business pay for itself. Don't spend your dollar hoping that the dollar might come back. Be smart about it. Do you remember how big your farm was when you first started? <laughs> well, zero. <laughs> when I, that was actually my first three years, it was zero because I was in Minnesota. I didn't know anybody. I wasn't even from there. I just thought I was going to make $10,000 every time I sold a house and I was going to be rich. <laughs> so how big was your first farm? You know, you're at 15000 now. How big did it start out at? I picked neighborhood. I picked neighborhoods that I wanted to have a presence in. And then I would just look at their sales for the last three years, each year for the last three years. If I saw a consistent number of decent sales in that neighborhood, it became my farm. Okay. But you didn't start out with a 15,000 piece farm, right? Yeah. Just like I suggested, I'm not going to ever talk about something that I haven't done myself. I started with one neighborhood and then I added a second and then I added a third and then I, I just added as I went. And then I took some neighborhoods off because nothing was happening after two years. So I'm constantly evaluating that in my annual planning of where are we going to spend our marketing dollars? And I've tracked it. How many listings came from the mailer? How many listings came from the database? How many listings came from the 800 number? So I can evaluate if we're going to keep that or not. One of my biggest decisions right now is to get rid of the back page of the real estate book. And I know people say, ah, oh, print is dead. You know, God, it's the back page of the real estate book. But honestly, in the last year, I think it has finally just literally gone away. If I would have just followed everybody else, I would have cut that money out five years ago, and I was still getting calls through there. I mean, it was almost 50% of our calls coming through the 800 number came off that back page of the real estate book ad. And again, when I tell a seller that, it's like, you know, anybody can, here's the dog and pony sh show stuff I was talking about. And I open up the book and I say, you know, anybody can talk about how they're going to put you in this nice, pretty color magazine and they're going to show you off and all that stuff. But honestly, if you're somewhere inside the magazine, I mean, how many people are going to get to this back part of the book, right? And none of, they're not even organized by area. And I flip it over and I say, we're on the back page. I locked up this back page because I know anybody that picks this magazine up will see that page. Every single person will see that page. And so all, and again, what this does is just reinforce at my listing that what I focus on is getting you the most exposure for your property. Now, I'm at a decision point right now where it's like I'm wondering if I shouldn't take that and put it somewhere else, which I'm tracking all those reports right now to figure out just how many calls we got through that magazine ad last year. Man, I just hate to give up the back page because it's, uh, I mean, that is, everybody sees that page. Of the few people that are picking it up, I guaranteed that page is seen. So anyway, those are things I evaluate constantly. And you're able to evaluate that because you're tracking Oh, yeah, the 800 number. I mean, I get nine numbers for every recording. So if it's code 800, 808 is MLS, 804 is the real estate book, 805 was another homes magazine we did, 807 is a website. So we're tracking when the consumer puts in 808 or 805 or 807, they hear the same recording, but it is tracking it on my back end to know what's working. 
Brad, let's take a, a moment and talk about your team. Could you tell us the structure of your team? Who's on your team, what their title is, and what they're doing for you? Well, we've had a lot of variations of that over the last five years. I'll start back in 05. We had the team up to eight people. I had four buyer's agents. They were just doing buyers. I just do listings, so I'm still the active listing agent. And then I had three admin people. I had contracts manager, our office manager that's there to answer the phone, and then a marketing gal. So in 05, we had eight people. By 09, we had stripped that down to three people, one admin, myself, and my buyer's agent. And it's all just about shifting with the market and doing what we need to do. What was crazy is we did the same amount of business with three people as I did with eight. (laughs) Yeah. So even though our sales had dropped about 15 sales, like we were at 125, 125 sales in 05, and I think we were at like 108 in 09, even though I had that many less sales, my net profit was so much more. It was actually one of our most profitable years. So, and that right now, today, that's grown back to, I'm still the listing agent. I have one admin person, Uh, We're just actually bringing my wife back in to help with the contract side of it a little more. And then I have a buyer's agent and a showing agent. And so the buyer's agent just literally meets, gets the buyer agency signed. The showing agent shows the properties and then brings them back to the buyer's agent to write contracts. Now that model, so far what I've seen over the last three years is doubling and tripling agents' businesses by, by really getting specialized. See, here, here's the thing I figured out about our whole buyer's agent system and building the team and all that stuff. If I have, and, and we're generating a ton of leads. So if I hand a buyer's agent 10 leads today, this week, they'll get 10 leads this week. They will try and get in touch with as many of those 10 as they possibly can. Two of them are going to be ready to do something now. The other eight, they'll try and get in touch with them a couple more days. And then by next week, I'll hand them 10 more leads and two of those people are going to be ready to do something right away. They'll try to connect with those eight. They've already forgotten about the eight from last week. Next week, I give them 10 more leads. They get two. They forget about the eight. So in three weeks, I've lost 32 leads that I've generated. But we've got, I mean, they're swamped. They got five, six people they're working with, right? So the deal about getting very specialized is, is really huge that that will allow the buyer's agent to convert more of those eight and be focused just sitting in the office making these calls. The calls and the notes seem to be the first thing people try and give up because they're harder to do. We'd rather do the easy stuff like sign up for another website that brings me in a thousand leads that I can convert two closings out of. It's just, it doesn't make sense. So we're, we just changed our structure to the showing agent model because I've seen way too many agents that are actually doubling and tripling their business through this model. This is really interesting. So it sounds like you've moved your buyer agent, what you're labeling buyer agent, into kind of a a lead coordinator follow-up position and presentation model. And then the buyer agent isn't actually going out in the field anymore to show properties. You have another agent called your showing agent who's showing homes. Is the showing agent also writing the contract? Uh, No, no, it's the buyer's agent supposed to write. Now, right now, because it's a new model and we're mixing this, there's a little bit of mixture happening. Only what I can tell you is it's not going to work that way. It it is going to have to be black and white. You do this or you do this. 
And the only, the only other person that I would add that's really going to help us convert more leads and make them even three to four times busier is one more piece in there that I've had in place was the call converter. Like there's somebody that just sat in the office from 10 to 4, and when that 800 number went off, they called them in less than three minutes, and we put this little system together. It's called the three and three. We call them three times for three days straight until we get a hold of them. And she actually just had a spreadsheet that she tracked. Our conversion rate to name, address, and phone number, remember, I don't care about email so much. I get away from email. I want address and I want phone number to get that personal touch back in there. Went from 3% conversion to 15% conversion in 60 days. It was about 45 days, actually. But in two months, by doing a three and three, we had start, we had converted up to 15% to name, address, phone number. So we basically quadrupled, more than quadrupled our, our conversion rate by having a person just doing that, just getting their address, phone number. Now, ideally... I will have that person setting up the buyer consultation for the buyer's agent to just, we won't hand out leads. We'll hand out consultations. They'll go get the consultation, get them locked up, get their search set up and introduce them to the showing agent. So there'll be three people on that piece of that team. And they'll all be working as a team or a unit. Where are you going to need people next? More showing agents under the buyer agent? Yeah, exactly. You could have you could have three showing agents for each buyer's agent. You know, we've we've heard in our industry forever that you can work with about seven buyers. They always say listings are the name of the game because you can work with 20 or 30 sellers versus if you're helping buyers, you can work with maybe seven or eight. With the showing agent model, they should be able to work with 15 to 20 buyers at any given time and just add the showing agents as you need them and keep them going. Because actually the... Where the money is earned is in the contract negotiations, writing up the price that will get accepted, making sure the financing is going through. Uh, honestly, the, the most time buyer's agents are spending are out showing properties, and it's the least dollar productive activity. However, you still got to do it. You still got to show them houses. So when a buyer's agent and a showing agent are working very specialized, what they're going to figure out real quick is the right script to get people to understand they're only going to look at three to five houses and they're going to buy one. Otherwise, the agents are just out there showing them houses forever until they buy, and then they're just running themselves ragged. And when you get very specialized, you're going to figure out how to do it better. The only, all the stuff I shared with you on the listing was the day that I decided, and I picked this up from top agents, is get specialized. And the day I gave up all my buyers from that day forward, I mean, I'm telling you, Mike, I couldn't afford to do it when I did it. I was scared to death, but that's, I'd heard it enough times that getting specialized was the key. So I said, that's it. I love marketing. I'm going to do listings. And I just hired some gal to just be my buyer's agent. This was, gosh, 15, 16 years ago and said, I'm not going to work with buyers anymore. So, and, and I remember my very first deal was a guy out of my database. He said, hey, I just saw this townhouse up north. I want to write an offer on it. I'm like, great. Did you tell the agent that you were working with? So yeah, I already told him I was using you, but they already showed it to me. I just want to write it. Well, I had already decided that day that I wasn't going to work with buyers anymore. So I literally just said, uh, Jen, it's your lucky day. Go write your first contract because I don't work with buyers anymore. And I paid her the split. And it, that was the beginning of where I am today because I made that decision. And I didn't look at it like money. I looked at it like this is what's going to be good for me in the future. That's why my listing, all the stuff I told you today doesn't seem like rocket science. 
it's because it's the only thing I do every single day. And it just helps me hone in on these stories and the skills and the scripts and, and how to get them to sign on the dotted line. And the other thing it did, I had to get dang good at selling listings because I just gave away all the profit. You know, by the time I pay a, the split to my buyer's agents, they're getting all the profit out of the deal. All I'm doing is covering office expenses on the buy side of my business. So when I, the day I said I wasn't working with buyers anymore, man, listings are the most expensive part of real estate. That's where you're spending money on advertising and signs and all that stuff. So I had to get really, really good at selling listings if I was going to make any bring home money, you know? Sure. Brad, back to this idea, this buyer agent and the showing agent, people are probably wondering out there, how do you compensate these people when they're working together like that? Yeah. uh, And I know compensation can be very confusing. However, what I can tell you is the average of what I've seen, probably, I can honestly tell you there's probably about six or seven, maybe even now a dozen agents that you know, I go to a lot of conferences. We all see each other. I know where their volume is when they get on stage and get interviewed for the first time and where their business has gone in just a year or two after implementing this model. There are at least a dozen of them that they're, they have literally gone from 60, 70 transactions to 200, 250 transactions. And the most common piece that I've seen and in my studies, what I have seen is our showing agent gets 15% 15% of the commission. So the buyer's agent's getting 35, the showing agent's getting 15. Now, where you got to be careful though is you got to have this plan figured out. You can't just try it one day. They have to be working as a team and that buyer's agent's going to have to get on the phone because if they keep trying to run their business like they've been running it and then you add a showing agent, they will the showing agent's not going to be making, making enough money at 15% to stay. They are going to literally have to be in the office three hours a day converting all these leads that they weren't converting before or it will not work. I mean, that's the caution I'm going to give you. Something different has to happen. And the different is you got to convert three times more business or three times more leads to make it work. And the way I explained it is if you guys follow this and you do this just like this plan shows here, you're not giving up 15% that showing agent is going to help you work with three times as many buyers. So now you got 35% times three versus 50% times one, right? The 15%, when somebody addresses, I'm telling you, when you talk to an agent about being a showing agent, they're going to say 15%. And then if they walk out in the hallway and talk to other realtors in the office, they're going to say, are you crazy? You can make 100% and do it on your own. People are going to put crap in their head. So you got to get, you got to explain it. That 15%, if all you have to do is go show properties from 9 until 5, you could probably show six buyers, five buyers a day, two hours a slot, right? That's 10 hours. That might be a long day, but four buyers a day every day. If you're showing 20 different buyers properties every week and all 20 of those close, or just say 10 of them close, you're going to make more at 15% with 10 buyers closing every month than you will ever make on your own as a buyer's agent trying to close one or two every other month. The numbers work out every way you think about it. They just have to get past the fact that they're not going to make, they're, they're going to think that they're not making very much money, and it's just not true. They're making a smaller percentage, but probably a larger aggregate number. Also, your buyer agent is able to move up, and and in a way, your buyer agent now is becoming a mini-team leader. They're a team leader of a mini-team. 
Yep, that's the that is the model. Yes, that you have three branches to your business. You have a listing part of your business, an admin part of your business, and a buyer's side of your business. And they're three different departments. And you need a key person in that head position that will hire the right people below them so that you as the rainmaker don't have to manage all this stuff. You get three great people to manage all that stuff below them, and they're just reporting the numbers to you, and you can see if you're on track to hit all your goals. Brad, you've got people running around. You've got this big mailing program. People are going to be wondering, are you profitable? Uh, let's just say I live in a really nice house, and my car starts every day, and I don't really live beyond my means. I do tell people real estate is a very low margin business. You do not have a lot of room for mistakes. Selling 100 houses a year at an average sale price of 150000 and I'm not afraid to spend money to make money. We are profitable. I mean, I haven't lost my house yet, and nobody's come take my car. <laughs> Electricity stays on. I have cable TV. So, you know, do we live real extravagant? No. Do we take vacations when we want? Yes. Do we go to all of our kids' stuff? Yes. Do I, you know, do I buy stuff when I need it? Yes. So it's a very... It's really, it's not even work. I love helping people. I love marketing. I love helping people get involved in this business on a team where they can actually make a good living themselves. So to me, it's not even really work. So I'd say it's super profitable from the fact that I'm not really working. I'm just having fun. Would you mind telling us what your profit margin is as a percentage of your revenues? It is probably about 30 to 40%. It should be 40. It's probably closer to 30, meaning we probably, see, I just net like around 200, 225,000 a year, but we bring in over 600,000, 550, 600. Any real estate business that I've seen, it's about a 60, 40%. And that is 60% expenses, 40% net. Now, the thing you got to be careful of, it's just like I said earlier, my buyer's agents are on a 50-50 split. The reason I can't pay, and I believe me, I used to pay them all 75% and keep 25%. It doesn't work because it costs you 60% to run a real estate business. You can't give 75% out and have 60% expenses. And it, it, I've tried it, guys. I tried it for years. It doesn't work. The 50% is barely workable. It is such a tight margin that the only way that will benefit me on that split is if we're closing 300 transactions a year. And that's kind of the plan we're on. The other thing, you know, when I do my 100 deals a year, understand that I've got these other revenue streams from coaching and speaking and and another group, the CyberStars. So I'm not even in real estate 80 hours a week or 60 hours a week. It's I'm just in it to go to my listing appointment and then I'm doing other things and I manage my listing and manage my team, but I've got multiple streams of income. So the way that it will work is if you're closing a lot of business, it will pay off. Brad, what drives you? What drives me? Probably just to make sure I have a great lifestyle for my family. I mean, I want them, I want the kids to be able to do what what they want to do and do the sports they want to do and give them a nice house to live in. And, and probably even more importantly, I mean, family's always right there, but I just love helping people in general. And what I built my real estate business on and why I got so good at selling listings is because I wanted people to have a fair shot at getting the most equity out of their house. I mean, it really was about helping them truly not get stuck 
with somebody who doesn't know what they're doing, leaving thousands of dollars of money on the table. The reason I went into speaking and coaching was because now not only can I help 100 families a year in Kansas City, but I can help 100 agents help 100 families. Now I'm helping 10,000 people. So I, I think it's really just about helping people help other people get what they want, you know? I mean, one of my favorite sayings is from Zig Ziglar. It's like, help people get what they want and you'll get way more than you ever wanted, you know? And it's, and it's not even about me getting more than I wanted. It's just about helping people get what they want. And it's, this isn't rocket science. I mean, this stuff I'm sharing with you guys today betters our industry. Everything I look at, I mean, even on my team with this new turnover of my new team, it's like, guys, this real estate transaction has to be the most incredible experience they've ever had. Not from any other reason other than we sell real estate. And if they have a crappy transaction or the rug gets pulled out of them at closing or they don't qualify for their loan or something doesn't go right, we're putting ourselves out of business. This is what we do is sell real estate. Man, you better blow their sock. This better be like Disneyland ride to them because we're in this for the long haul. So that's what it's about is that every agent can provide incredible service. It's just you know, doing one sale a month or every other month, it's going to be tough for you to figure it out until you just do the right things. And, and so I love helping people in general. Brad, you've mentioned CyberStars. What is CyberStars? CyberStars was started by a gentleman, Alan Hange, almost 16, 17 years ago. It was at NAR. Now, Picture this, 1995, NAR has a technology panel. In 95, the internet was just barely being invented by uh, Gore, I think. No, I'm kidding. Um, but they had a technology panel, so they had three agents up there talking about technology, and it was the most packed room there was. Well, those three agents that were sitting there said, we need to find other agents like us that are talking technology so we can all learn from each other. Because technology, really, the internet and stuff was so new, and websites and, and all this stuff was pretty new back then. So Alan and them just started forming a group, and it turned into 20 people. Then it turned into 50. We're up to almost 200 agents now that are just some of the top techiest realtors all across the planet. If somebody wants to look at it, cyberstars.net. Like many things in this group, to become a cyberstar, there is some volume requirements and business requirements because we're just really creating an upper-end mastermind group for agents to keep moving forward. As a top agent, you kind of get out there on an island by yourself, and especially in your own local market, if you're one of the top agents, it's like everybody thinks you've just had the golden spoon handed to you. So you got to find other agents around that are doing the same amount of business or doing more that you can learn from because you don't, you can't find it in your own marketplace. So we have an agent in each major market and there's, shoot, we got 11 open states right now. Alan's been building this for the last 16, 17 years. Unfortunately, he is going through a battle with cancer for his second round. And his big thing was to find somebody that would carry on the culture that it originally began as. And uh, I've been a member of the group for over 10 years and I mean, really, I was pretty humbled to even though my name made it on the list to run the thing. But they're all my friends. I mean, we've all been learning from each other for years. We just got back from San Diego where we talked about, I mean, just two solid days, just multiple panels of technology and how we're actually using it in our business. Ideally, um, we expect in the next year or two to actually bring that out to the whole industry where these agents can put on a two or three day 
Technology Summit. So it's just top techie agents all across the country. Cyberstars.net is where you can get more information about that. Brad, if you were going to advise a brand new agent just getting in the business, what would you tell them to do first? Well, I would say, honestly, truly, training, training, training. And it's a mindset that most people don't buy into. They think, oh, I went to that training class in my office last week, so I don't need to do it again. It is about repetition. And everything that I've gotten good at, I've done the same class probably 10 times, 12 times. The books on your shelves, the really, if you can remember the last great book you read on anything marketing-wise, you probably read it once. Pick it up and read it four more times and read it six and seven and eight times. The, the fourth or fifth time you go through something, any kind of a training class or anything, something different happens. It actually starts to make sense or you can actually see how it fits because you're at a different place mentally than when you were the first time you read it. The Millionaire Real Estate Agent book, read it 12 times. It, it'll be the, you're going to get excited the first time you read it and still kind of excited the second, but it's the fourth and fifth and sixth time that it starts showing up in your business. And I just, the, the other thing I was going to tell you too, it's just getting back into training. Coaching and training, I mean, Tiger Woods does not become the best golfer without a coach. And we've also kind of seen what happens when a great golfer like Tiger Woods doesn't have a coach. <laughs> Remember when he fired all of his coaches? So coaching and training and like your website, having all this information, it's not go watch this video once. It's watch it 10 times and make that a part of your life. I go to so much training. I'm like an education sponge. I go to, I'm at every conference you can imagine. And it's just amazing how many conferences I do go to that I don't see anybody else from my marketplace there, or at least other top agents, you know? So it's the same kind of crew going around to these great conferences and seminars where you come back and you implement and put it into place. Brad, you mentioned that you do coaching. If somebody was interested in their coaching program, is there a website they could go learn more about it? Uh, yeah, that's a simple one, too. It's coachcorn.com. Coach with a C, corn with a K. <laughs> um, but yeah, I actually, I even just wrote a 16-week course, which was probably one of the hardest things I've ever done in my life to write. To write a course that somebody's going to be willing to pay for, that when you sit on that call, you get off the call and go, wow, that was cool. Um, and it's 16 one-hour calls for four months. It's 99 bucks a month. They can find out that information on coachcorn.com too. I do one-on-one -on -one coaching as well. But the group coaching, the course that I wrote is called Make the Phone Ring Again. And it literally is about taking your database and turning it into a gold mine. We have three things we do. I give you an automated plan. Well, first of all, I get your mindset straight in the first couple calls. We build a reconnect plan to reconnect with everybody in your database, like I said earlier. Then we build an 8x8, eight eight, and then we build a 33 touch. And by the end of 16 weeks, the way I wrote the course is that you'll at least be in the habit of doing five a day and being in your database every day. That's the goal at the end of 16 weeks. If you set these plans up, it will fill your one to two to three hours of lead generation time every single day. It'll just fill up automatically, but you've got to get in the habit of getting into it every day and feeding it every day and then just starting the plan. So really, when I say lead generation, I'm feeding my database every day and writing notes and very focused on that. 
all the follow-up stuff is all automatic. I Like today, I don't even have a clue if I have 30 calls today or 45 calls today. It doesn't matter if the computer says to do 45 calls, I'll get 45 calls done. Or I might get 40 done, you know. It doesn't matter. I just get as much done as I possibly can. And if it's a little – now, you got to understand, I've been doing this for seven years. If somebody starts with five a day, they won't have 40 calls next week. They're not going to have 40 calls for like two years in one day. You know what I mean? <laughs> it takes a while to build that up. But it's just – it eases you into it. And so that's the whole purpose is to get them in the habit of just being in their database every day. Brad, do you think that top agent interviews like the one we're doing now with Mastermind Agent are valuable? Completely. It's even more valuable when I said earlier that you reference back to it over and over and over again. Everything that we've just covered, I mean, we basically just covered 22 years of real estate in however long the interview is, you know what I mean? Guys, you heard something in here that sparked you, got you excited about something. It may not show up in your business until you've listened to this four or five more times. And the fourth and fifth and sixth time, you're going to hear something, oh, now I get it. And that's that's how I started implementing things. I just kept going to the same thing over and over and over again. When I listen to a CD or an interview, I pop it into my car and I'll let it run for a month solid. Just repeat the CD over and over and over again. And I'll do it while I'm just driving around or on the making calls because I know it's subliminally sinking into my head as well. So it's repetition, repetition. So yeah, I that's how I built my business on things like this. Brad, I've come to the end of my questions for today. Is there anything else you'd like to talk about that we haven't addressed? Uh, we covered a lot. You know, it, it really is about implementation. All the information in the world, knowledge, they say knowledge is power. It's really implementation is power. Hearing something and getting excited about it and not literally doing something to put it into place is, is just a disservice to yourself and your business. So, one of the other things I coach people on this is so simple is just to build some on time in your business where you're working on your business. And if everybody listening to this call right now will pull out your calendar and in a black permanent marker, take one hour on Monday, one hour on Wednesday, one hour on Friday, block it out in black permanent marker. Nothing gets in the way of this and write the words on and that's just where you give yourself three hours a week to work on your business, to get lost in your database, to listen to this interview again, to make a top three list of what you're going to implement next, to then take the number one item and actually put it into place. I'm telling you, Mike, that, again, it's the implementation. That, that little thing right there is what turned me into an implementation machine. So it's not so much going to the conferences and hearing it over and over again. It's I had to hear it over and over again because I'm always implementing something new. If I were listening to this interview, I may have written down 30 different things that I thought were great ideas, and then I throw the notepad on my desk, and I'll find it six months later. Oh, yeah, those were good ideas, where I just narrowed it down to my top three. Okay, of all these ideas, this one I can do tomorrow. This one costs no money to do. I need to do that. That'll just even make me a little more efficient. And this one I need to do. And I'll just, those are the only three that stay in front of me. And then when my on time popped up, those are the three things I implemented. Reality is, is I'll forget about the other 27 until the next conference and I'll get 30 more ideas and I take the top three. So the repetition, just always those old ideas that I never got to keep surfacing when they're supposed to. Well, Brad, you are incredibly persistent. Your first three years tested your resolve. Most agents would have thrown in the towel, 
but you persevered and built a sturdy operation. You've been able to sell 100 homes per year for the last seven years in a row, even through the Great Recession. It's a testament to the systems you've built. It all centers around you picking up the phone, talking with your people, and maintaining relationships. It's a sound business model. Thank you again for being our top agent of the month. And join us next call when we talk to an agent who sells high-priced homes high in the sky. Find out who he is on the next success call. If you like the show and want to know when the next one's coming out, click the subscribe button on iTunes or Stitcher. And if you want to hear more episodes like this, give the show a five-star review and write a quick comment. I read them all, and it motivates me to keep going and share the top agent success stories with you. Thanks. If you're looking for more ways to generate leads, check out our sponsor, RealGTV, real estate agent lead generation television, and their giant database library of video trainings where top agents reveal, demonstrate, and discuss their best lead generation methods. Visit RealGTV, R-E-A-L-G dot TV. If you're low on funds or just want to get the maximum leverage, check out my masterclass webinar titled Top 5 Free Lead Sources for Real Estate Agents. Learn more at freeleadtime.com. That's freeleadtime.com. Oh, and if you have a real estate friend who needs some inspiration, tell them about the Success Calls podcast. And don't you forget to subscribe right now to hear all the great top agent ideas. Keep moving forward. You've been listening to Success Calls on the Mastermind Agent Network where top real estate agents from across North America reveal their success secrets, strategies, and systems in up-close and personal interviews. You can find all the calls at www.mastermindagent.com.